I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The Deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcasts. And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. The story of the UK is an economy that has got real momentum. What is broken can be repaired. What is ruined can be rebuilt. UK inflation is becoming much more homegrown. We have huge potential as an economy in the UK. This is a time to tell Israel there is a path to peace. Our plan for the British economy is working, but the work is not done. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. For some reason, I have political slogans stuck in my head this Mm. morning. And why? I mean, it's always because I use them for bad jokes is normally when this comes up. And it was a favourite thing of mine to do in France because French people used to be mystified that I would uh, remember them. (laughs) Do you you remember? Some of them stick in my mind. Yeah, I mean, get Brexit done true a classic of yes. the genre take back control was yes. the sort of you know it was a reversion from that um yeah those stick in my mind but obviously i spent a lot of time in the state so yes we can ah yeah see of course see the ones i think of the irish ones actually because there were ones during um Fianna Fáil had one in 2002 which was a lot done more to do um. and then at the height of ireland's kind of celtic tiger economy the labor party which was an opposition at the time had one that was but are you happy this is very, uh, very interesting very as a reference to people. It? Yeah. Um, so, but there's one, of course, from the political landscape that's back in the top of our minds this morning. Do you remember this one? I took the decision to call a general election so that we have the strong and stable leadership we need to see us through Brexit and beyond. The choice at the election is clear. Strong and stable leadership with me in the national interest or a hung parliament and coalition of chaos under Jeremy Corbyn. Oh, strong and stable. So often parodied afterwards it, because of what followed that election in 2017. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's so difficult, isn't it, for the catchphrases not to become terrible cliches. Um, what our producer has just said, hands, face, space. Which, I mean, makes me also laugh very now and cringe. Yeah, right? yes. Slightly traumatic too. But I mean, the strong and stable mantra is interesting because I think now it probably became quite aspirational in the Conservative Party after the, the Johnson and Truss years, of course, and it was part of what brought Rishi Sunak to power as leader as well. Mm. But now, today, that seems to maybe be in question as well. The PM's at the COVID inquiry uh, today. He's facing, of course, tough questions over the Eat Out, Eat Out to Help Out scheme as well. Uh, something that had led to all sorts of monikers when he yeah. rose to power at that moment. Do you remember actually going out? I remember the restaurant that my husband and I went to for that Eat Out to Help Out moment. And weirdly, I remember the trepidation that we felt yeah. about it. So it kind of does have some very, uh, yeah, it, it has evocative memories. But this is at the, the centre, really, of the Prime Minister facing questioning today from the KC, the, the King's Council, at the official COVID inquiry. He went from, do you remember Rishi? Dishy? Yes, the, what Dishy Rishi, yeah. what the newspapers called him, then branded Dr. Death the Chancellor by one of the top advisors in government because of that 
policy. Yeah, of course. So that's one focus of the Prime Minister today. The other, though, is everything that's happening behind the scenes in the Conservative Party around the Rwanda de- deportation bill, the mm-hmm. European Research Group, those pro-Brexit MPs headed by Marc Francois, they're planning a meeting today to discuss how they're going to vote on it. Uh, are they going to try and source the 29 votes needed to defeat Sunak's legislation? Then you've got the One Nation group of moderate yes. Tories. They're also going to decide on their position today as well. The question is, is it is it basically a return to Conservative Party Tory chaos? Joining us to discuss, our senior government reporter, Alex Wickham. Good to have you in the studio. So the disarray, um, is there really, how much disarray really is there in the Conservative Party at the moment? Is it a return, you know, to, to that kind of chaos that we've seen quite a lot of? Yeah, I'd say a lot of disarray. And, you know, it absolutely does feel a bit Theresa May, which, no offence to Theresa May, is, is probably not what you want to hear if you're Rishi Sunak. Um, he has got these different factions pulling him in different directions within the Conservative Party on his flagship piece of Rwanda legislation. And it is very difficult to see a way through for Downing Street. Whether the big crunch point comes this week or after Christmas remains to be seen. It could be that uh, Tory MPs just basically let him off the hook this week and and, and vote his bill through a second reading in order to amend it at a later date and um, sort of regroup for the big fight later on but it may not even even get that far so yes he is in big trouble i mean the, the problem is if you're rishi sunak you are hoping to go into next year as right this is election year we need to all pull together we need to you know show that we're united and can take the fight to labor and instead the narrative irresistibly is tory chaos yet again Alex, surely with everything that's happened over the past couple of years, your bar for what counts as serious Tory infighting must be very high. The public's must be as well. Where does this fit into the scale of previous episodes we've seen? It's up there. You know, I don't I don't think he faces an immediate, you know, like we're not at the jostling of the whips in the lobbies stage, are we? Not not quite, not far mm. off. I mean, I, you know, I don't think think we're at the a sort of immediate peril for him in that you know he could be forced out this week or anything like that i don't think but you know the fact that we can't say that for certain mm. does show what what a dangerous situation he is in you know i think the central scenario is that he sort of lives to fight another day this week you know he get he wins this vote in the commons narrowly and then the factions regroup the sort of right-wing pro-brexit hardcore and anti-immigration faction yes um, and then the sort of more centrist faction they both regroup and they both sort of work out right after christmas what are we going to do are we seriously going to basically threaten to remove the prime minister again Look, on, so on the, Rwanda, on the Rwanda bill itself, it just does seem incredible that both the former Home Secretary and the former Immigration Minister say that this bill will not work, that is going to the vote. Then you've got these four lawyers, the so-called Star Chamber, you know, getting together and giving their analysis that apparently a lot of the different factions within the Conservative Party are going to look at very, very closely. And in terms of the bill in and of itself... Do they have enough votes? The ERG, remember them so influential in every Brexit vote. Do they have enough votes? Do the One Nation groups, you know, have enough votes to um, support or scupper, more importantly, the bill? Well, Downing Street will hope that it can peel off enough from each 
group Faction. of rebellions um, and, and convince enough of MPs to just to, to basically get it through today or uh, tomorrow. And, and is that is that what you're hearing is happening at the moment? Are there lots of angry phone exactly. calls being made? Yeah, you know, Number 10 has spent the weekend and the whips and, and even David Cameron have, have spent the weekend, you know, on hitting the phones, telling Tory MPs, come on, you know, if you vote this down, you're, you're basically saying the Prime Minister's finished. And that is, you know, it, Number 10 is very keen to say that this isn't a confidence vote, you know, the, the sort of formal way of saying that if he loses the vote, then 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 he has to go. Of course, they're keen to say that because, because they're nervous about the vote. Um, but, you know, that is basically the message to Tory MPs. But how did it get to this? I mean, you know, we, it was only a few weeks ago that, that we were talking about the five pledges and actually economically... Uh, on inflation, the Prime Minister is doing uh, okay, better than a lot of people had thought. On economic growth, also not too terrible. We avoided recession. You know, on the others, there was some progress happening. But this issue of immigration, again, is just so central. I mean, it was, one could say, also the issue that, that did for David Cameron himself as PM. Yeah, and... Yeah, immigration typically should be home turf for the Tories, and and uh, you know a tough immigration policy sound 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 tough. Get the numbers down and 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 have, attack the Labour Party. That's traditionally what the Tories have done with some success down down the decades. But for this Prime Minister, he hasn't managed to serious I mean he promised to stop the boats he hasn't managed to stop the boats. They've come down a little bit. Legal migration, you know, very high. And the the thing is, Rishi Sunak chose to make stopping the boats a flagship policy of his, one of his five pledges. Mm. No one made him do that. You know, he decided politically that he had to do that in order to get the right wing on side, basically. No one made him back the Rwanda policy. It was Boris Johnson and Priti Patel's policy from, from you know, beginning of 2022. Richie Sunak didn't particularly like it at the time when he was Chancellor. He sort of thought, well, I don't think there's much value for money in this. It doesn't seem to be, doesn't seem to be very sensible. But in the summer leadership contest against Liz Truss, it became a purity test and Sunak decided, well, I've got to, I've got to say I like the Rwanda policy. So he has, for political reasons, got himself into a corner and, you know, a critic would say that that was bad politics he would say i had no choice and you know i've been i've been bashed into this position by by the tory right which is forever addicted to to you know harder and harder lines that make things impossible for prime ministers but so, it's difficult for him but so so can political skill get rishi sunak out of this i don't know if political skill can it's it's more the sort of threat of of do you really want to do this again? Do you really want to get rid of another Prime Minister? We got rid of Boris Johnson, we got rid of Theresa May, we got rid of David Cameron, we got rid of Liz Truss. Do you really want to get rid of me as well? Do you really think the voters will say, oh, great, another Prime Minister? And he probably got a point. That is, But to be honest, if his best argument is don't do it to me like you did to the others because the voters won't look kindly upon that. It's not a great argument. You know, his argument should be, I'm the best person for the job and I've got the best policies to win the election and, and the best personality to win the election. And on those elements, he is struggling to win that argument, which is why you're getting these conversations going. Yeah, absolutely staggering. Head in hands on, on the number of, of PMs um, that we've had in a row in the UK. But look, those meetings are happening in Westminster. We're thinking about this major bill, but then at the same time, with um, little fanfare and pre-briefing, the Prime Minister is also under very different type of pressure, giving evidence to the COVID-19 inquiry. Let's just take a listen to a bit of what he had to say uh, just this morning to that inquiry. I just wanted to start by saying 
how deeply sorry I am to all of those who lost loved ones, family members through the pandemic, and also all those who suffered uh, in the various different ways throughout the pandemic and as a result of the actions were taken. So a strikingly similar apology to what we heard from Boris Johnson, which had the King's Counsel Hugo Keith asking the former PM, what are you apologising for exactly? Alex, how does the COVID inquiry testimony then fit into this backdrop of upheaval within the Tory party? Is it Does it actually help to distract the Prime Minister to give him something else to focus on? Or is it a, something that's a risk? I think it's, it's a problem because really in a situation as grave as Sunak's on the Rwanda bill, he needs to be spending the day convincing his MPs to, to back him. And unfortunately for him, he, ha- he has no choice but to spend it, spend it an inquiry going through all this all this sort of you know, recent history that you know, certainly he would rather not go through at any time, let alone, let alone today. So it is a problem. It, it adds to this idea that, that you know, he, he just has essentially crisis after crisis piling up mm. and 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 in pressure after pressure building you know I, I i think boris johnson came through his hearing last week relatively unscathed um and sunak will hope to do the same thing you know mm. we kind of we know, we kind of know what happened in covid it's I, I think and it's it's sort of quite hard to create a new news line that is going to cause a a huge storm in Westminster so that Mm. while attention is on while his attention is on Covid the attention of everybody else will be on Rwanda in Westminster but it is very revealing though to see those individuals having to answer questions in quite a different forum with a lawyer quite slow very deliberate and that is quite um, an unusual venue to see the Prime Minister in you know that's why it's been so revealing Alex you are also our resident WhatsApp expert when it comes to Westminster I want you to have a listen to what Rishi Sunak uh, was being asked in terms of his messages his WhatsApp messages messages have a listen I've changed my phone multiple times over the past few years and as that has happened the messages have not come across I'm not a prolific user of WhatsApp in the first instance, primarily communication with my private office and obviously anything that was of significance through those conversations or exchanges will have been recorded officially by my civil servants as one would expect. So not a prolific WhatsApp user. Um, That goes against the tech bro image that the Prime Minister has. What do you make of that? It does. I mean, Interestingly, you know, I've spoken to cabinet ministers even about this uh, last few months, and a common complaint is that they WhatsApp Rishi Sunak to say, "Hi, Prime Minister, would you like to meet to t- discuss something?" Or, "Hi, Prime Minister, I've had an idea about this policy." And you know, on WhatsApp, when those that, when you can see that someone's read your Left message on red. and you get those blue ticks, he leaves <laughs> them on red. He, he he reads the message, he leaves them on blue ticks, and he doesn't reply. So, it, I think he's probably telling the truth when he says that he's not a big WhatsApper. It, to the fr- real immense frustration of some of his colleagues um, but certainly you know the fact that he's changed his phone a few times uh, I think it, it may well be for you know real reasons for security purposes whatever mm. but I think voters are going to say you know why, why are all these senior politicians changing their phones all the time and, and, and losing all their WhatsApp messages yes. very convenient what, What's really at stake for the Prime Minister in answering these questions? Well you know I think I think what the inquiry would like to find out is whether, you know, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak were 
admitting mistakes you know back then on whatsapp and whether they were having policy deliberations that were that were revealing beyond what we already know I imagine so many WhatsApps have been published already through through you know through the evidence so far. Without seeing all of them, I think we get a pretty good idea of what happened and what the what the sort of uh, culture and feeling was like in Number Ten at the time. Okay, Alex, thank you so much for being with us uh, on the program. That is Bloomberg senior government reporter Alex Wickham. Then looking at Rishi Sunak and the dilemmas and uh, difficulties he faces this week. Yeah, certainly. So as we're watching for developments on how those groups in the, within the Tory party decide to vote on the bill, the legal opinions as well. We're also waiting to hear from an unlikely figure who may be weighing on the minds of some Tory MPs, and that's Nigel Farage. The politician is landing back in the UK after his stint on the reality TV show I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Our reporter Tiwa Adebayo is back with us in studio. Tiwa, you came to talk to us before Nigel Farage went into the jungle uh, to begin with. Why do we care about him coming out now? Well, it does feel like just yesterday that I was sitting here discussing what might happen when uh, Mr. Farage was let loose in the jungle. Um, But I think now is the time where we'll really start to see the impact of his reality TV stint. Nigel Farage, of course, has been a thorn in the side of the Conservative Party for over a decade now. Um, you know, many have learnt the mistakes of underestimating him. So I think we should always care what Mr Farage is doing, especially because his fingerprints seem to be all over the government's immigration policy. And so understanding his thinking is really key to understanding the government's next moves. Um, We've been talking about Rishi Sunak's uh, five key pledges. Uh Of course, a big one is stopping small boats. Now, Nigel Farage is also known for his campaigning on immigration and his videos uh, about talking about stopping small boats coming into southern England. So we can see that the Prime Minister and the government are clearly trying to regain some of the ground taken by the former UKIP leader and also now Reform UK. Um, And so it'll be very interesting to see where he goes next, where his political ambitions, which are always alive, will take him. I mean, look, in this strange media landscape, perhaps I shouldn't be surprised that I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, is <laughs> somehow a durager now for, for politicians and is hugely politically influential. I can't say I'm a regular watcher, but what might happen as he emerges from this? What could be his next move? Is it savvy? I mean, I mentioned on a previous political podcast that, you know, people that I meet who are not involved in media are very interested in I'm a celebrity. I mean, does this help him perhaps shaping the narrative around his, he's never managed to become an MP. That's the bottom line. But maybe this, would it change that that, that fact? Well, I mean, the jury is out on that one. It's certainly true that uh, there have been lower viewing figures than last year's I'm a Celebrity, in which Matt Hancock took place. Mm. Uh, he also finished in third place, just like Nigel Farage, so maybe that's oh, where politicians... the politician's politicians. place, obviously. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but as to whether or not it'll help him cut through the noise and reach a different sort of audience, it's certainly something he wanted going into the programme. He actually talked whilst he was in the jungle about wanting to do more challenges to reach more of a different audience, a younger audience. So it's something that was on his mind. Um, There was a great piece out by Bloomberg's political team this morning um, and they said that it would be sort of naive to suggest that Nigel Farage would leave the jungle without a sort of plan 
plan to leverage the support that we saw for mm. uh, the party Reform UK that he's a part of but does not lead. He'll definitely now, having left the jungle over the weekend, he'll probably be sitting down in a hotel in Australia thinking about his next move, thinking about how he can really capitalise on the attention that we're seeing for uh, his party and also his politics. Yeah, and as we as we know, always an interesting political figure to watch, as you say, for the reasons you've outlined about his influence uh, on the Tory party as well. Tio Adebayo, thanks very much for talking us through Nigel Farage's stint in the jungle. Next to another item then on the government's agenda, a major new reservoir in Oxfordshire that's supposed to help ensure London's water supply in the future is up in the air. The project needs government approval. Already one local MP has called it a monstrosity. This as MPs will question executives from Thames Water tomorrow over the state of the company's finances. This is a story that we've been covering uh, for some time at Bloomberg. Our reporter Eamon Farhat joins us now for more on this. Look, we'll get on to uh, the issues around Thames Water, um, which seem to only be growing more severe in a moment. But firstly, just on this reservoir project in particular, is it going to get approval? Why is it so important? So, yeah, in the UK, there hasn't been a new reservoir for something like 30 years. And there definitely is a need for reservoirs. When I talk to people across the industry, you know, we, we have these projections that show that, you know, we're using more water. You know, there's more droughts happening across the country. So we need this reservoir. But it is going to cost apparently £2.4 billion. Um, it's going to be about 3.5 times the size of Monaco, seven square kilometres. So it's actually a huge thing. And that's a lot where the local opposition comes from. It's actually like kind of a pretty big mega project. And the thing about this is that we, you know, we're talking about it now. The construction wouldn't start until 2026. It wouldn't actually be operational until probably 2040 or 2039. So it's really, we're planning way, way ahead. So it's sometimes difficult to, I guess, with these bigger projects, you know, think about a decision now when it's going to happen in maybe 15 years. Um, but yeah, lots of local opposition and actually the one of the, the co-CEO, the interim co-CEO of Thames Water, um, Catherine Ross, I met her actually just before all of this happened back in June. She lives quite near to the reservoir and even she was saying people around her local area, you know, they aren't the biggest fan of her because they know that, you know, this big company Thames Water is planning this massive reservoir, which could cause f- flood risks, will be a massive cost and also could cause issues in the local area. Yeah, so another challenge then for, for Thames Water is we consider the difficulty aiming around their finances to the debts the company soaring to almost £15 billion. Just give us a reminder of what sort of financial state the company's in. Yeah, as you said, I mean, Thames Water definitely across the industry is probably one of the, you know, on the worst side of things. They have this massive debt. There's also this new investment plan that they have to try and fund. So basically from 2025, 2030, they propose this 18.7 billion investment plan to the regulator, which has to get approved. But, you know, that investment plan, they will need about 2.5 billion of, of investment into their company. And right now, you know, things are looking good from the people we're talking to. Just to give you an idea, you know, back in June, the CEO, Sarah Bentley, she abruptly resigned. You know, there was lots of talk about nationalization because of because of all this debt. And Thames Order, in all, in all of its communication to, to us, to Parliament as well, in a hearing back then, they referred to this 500 million pounds of equity and that there was more equity coming. But it kind of became clear in the last maybe week that this this 500 million of equity it actually may have actually been a loan. Um, I mean, Thames Water has a very complex corporate structure, and it seems that this 500 million equity was kind of presented as an equity to Thames Water, but actually came in as a loan to one of the parent companies, and that might be one of the major focuses of this hearing because they did tell Parliament back in I think it was in July that this was new equity, it's kind of a vote of confidence in Thames Water. But now, if this turns out to be a loan with 8% annual interest, it's a very different picture. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so you've got this emergency parliamentary hearing. I mean, you've got to think that the, the company executives tomorrow are going to be uh, going to get a very severe grilling from MPs. I mean, there are sort of question marks about whether Thames Water, as you as you say, is in that sort of downward spiral. How much blame you know can be laid at the door of the executives, the very complex structure of it, versus the regulator? I, I mean, it's a real mess. What are MPs going to be asking? Yeah, I mean, last time we had this, you know, they were definitely going in very, very hard. Uh, I think what's quite interesting about this is that Catherine Ross, who is the co-CEO of Thames Water, the interim co-CEO, she also used to be the chief executive of Offwatt. So they actually, last time, were asking her almost mm. putting her Offwatt hat on and putting her um, Thames Water hat on, you know, blaming her for issues of the past, present, and I guess the future. Um, yeah, there's always that kind of balance between is it the regulator's fault or Thames Water's fault. I mean, when Thames Water presented these investment plans, this major, you know, 18.7 billion pound investment plan, they made it clear in those plans that in the current rules that the regulator presents to them, the returns just aren't there for their plan to be viable. So they're almost trying to force the regulator's hand by saying, you know, we need to be able to re- to offer greater returns to investors if we want, to, you know, to invest in our in our water system. So I think, yeah, that's going to be a major question is, you know, who, kind of who is to blame. And then there's also the, all these questions about you know, what happened in the past. I mean, Macquarie was kind of, they owned some funds which managed Thames Water from 2007, 2017. The debt rose from like 3.4 billion to 10.8 billion in that period. And that is kind of still hanging on, hanging over Thames Water all these years later. And there's often and a question of was there not enough regulation early on but I guess you know in hindsight you know we can say all that it's difficult to say to, to act on that now yeah, certainly. Lots of difficult questions to be answered by Thames Water and their executives. Of course, MPs very conscious of the fact that Thames Water bills are due to go up significantly as well. Yes. And that's something that their uh, electorate is going to be watching for very closely for details of who exactly is going to pay for this. Eamon Farhat, thanks so much for joining us uh, with the details of that story as we continue to watch the latest developments with Thames Water as well. This is something that politicians are going to get questions on the doorsteps in the election it's, campaign that we're expecting. It's an absolutely staggering story, given that Thames Water is the largest water company in the UK. You know, we've already had the issue with uh, sewage uh, into mm-hmm. Britain's waterways. This is another major infrastructure uh, story that seems to be sort of crumbling in, in a lot of ways. And there are lots of questions to be answered as well as thinking about the future. And, and the question of public investment, mm. will that be needed to help bail these companies out? Because, you know, other Water companies have had financial difficulties as well. Thames Water, absolutely the most acute of those two, uh, but it is a challenge facing the industry as a whole, which is, at the end of the day, a public utility that we all need. But that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe, give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. So this episode was produced by James Walcock. Our audio engineer was Marufa Hussain. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.